Welcome to Page, the podcast where writers dissect a single page of their book. I'm your host, Abby Hollick, and each week I'll be speaking to a different best-selling memoirist or non-fiction writer about their most frank, moving or hilarious page. I pick the standout page that examines a breakthrough moment and invite the author to dig deeper. Along the way, we learn a thing or two about how to survive and cope with whatever life flings at us. Lenny Henry first appeared on our TV screens in 1975 when he was just 16 years old. His recent memoir, Who Am I Again?, goes right back to his childhood in Dudley in the West Midlands and charts his rise to fame on the talent show New Faces and on the UK's first all-black sitcom, The Fosters, and the cult children's Saturday morning programme, Tis Was. Lenny grew up in a loud, busy household, alongside seven siblings. His parents, Winston and Winifred, moved from Jamaica to England in the 50s. In this book, Lenny makes a point of wanting to own his story. For the first time, he details his regrets about not learning to fight back against racist abuse. He's extremely honest about being beaten by his mother growing up and about discovering that his real father was the man he knew as Uncle Bertie, the guy he'd been doing chores for once a week for 18 months. But humour and Lenny's passion for studying comedy and analysing why a joke works shines through as he goes from making his teenage mates laugh to doing spot-on impressions of Muhammad Ali and Tommy Cooper on the circuit. He has a PhD in media arts and in 2015 was awarded a knighthood for services to charity and drama. Most recently, he's just published his first children's novel, The Boy With Wings. Lenny, thanks so much for doing this. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. So please, could you read page 199? Yes, I could and I will and I shall. I was gaining experience, though. 27 episodes of The Fosters. I'd worked with Arthur Mullard and Irene Handel. I was spending time with Norman Beaton and the rest of the Fosters cast. I was hanging out with the Lockshan gang and learning what it was to be London. My accent was adapting into a kind of mockney whenever I was there. Mind you, because I was a mimic, wherever I went I seemed to take on the accents of that place. My survival technique on the road was to blend in, fit in, integrate. And it seemed to work. Wherever I went, the locals thought I was from there, and that suited me. I would do anything to knock down a barrier just to make my progress easier. It was hard enough just showing up somewhere and doing a show for one night or three days or a week. I didn't need people picking on me because I was from the black country and talked funny. I wanted them to like me. Comedians are generally quite needy people. I was no different. And that's how I went into 1978. Papa was no longer around and I was the family's main breadwinner. I loved being able to help my sibs out financially with a new carpet, couch or school uniform. Although I was one of the youngest, show business had conferred adulthood on me. I was ambivalent about this. On the one hand, it was good to have the facility to be generous, but at times, the responsibility was a burden. Thank you. So I picked this passage because I wanted to start with integration and what you were told growing up about how to integrate and why that was vital for survival. Um, my mum stood us all in the hallway of the house one day before we went to school. And um, this is how I remember it. She said, you must integrate. You must go out to the Dudley people, them, and make friends with them. Try not to box them down because they're stupid and racist, but integrate. 
mingle with the people, them, and on and on and on. And we, we all got the idea that it was important for us somehow to try and mix and be better equipped to cope with the microaggressions. Otherwise, we wouldn't get on. And I think what she was saying underneath all that was that we weren't going to get anywhere unless we fitted in, unless we tried, because we lived in a very kind of cocooned household. Everything in the house was Jamaican, the food, the people, the language, the patois, and we didn't really need anybody else. We went out because we had to, um, but when we were at home, everybody spoke in a Jamaican accent. And from the time she said, please integrate, we all made an effort to change. And I was very successful uh, and, at it. And would she have shared her own personal story and the kind of lessons that she'd learned? No, she was very um, private about the things that she'd been through. And it wasn't until later on when she was poorly and you'd be sitting by her bedside, would she tell you that people would rub her head on the bus and say it was like Velcro or kids would chase her down the street and ask her where her tail was or whenever she was at work, people would say, what part of Africa are you from? And she'd have to say, well, I'm not from Africa, I'm from Jamaica and things like that. People throwing things at her on the street. She had a lot of things to deal with my mom and uh, she didn't tell me for a long time. And as we're always with parents, you know, they keep the best bits for themselves. Neither she or my father told me anything about their marriage, their relationship, their childhoods until way, 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 way late. It was almost as if they didn't want to burden us with that. They just wanted us to have a kind of relatively normal childhood. And so as a result of that, I did. And I got hit. And because of the intensity of the beatings, I used to think, well, and this is me as nine, I wonder if she knows that she's been hitting me for 10 minutes. I wonder if she knows that she's using far too much force. I wonder if she knows that she's picked up a frying pan. You know, there are all these things where my mom's berserker rages didn't add up to what I'd actually done. So I knew there was something going on, sort of amateur shrink lens style, but mm. I didn't know how to kind of figure it out. I kind of just knew that there was something bigger going on than just me dropping a vase. So your family and, and all your siblings in the front room are sat down and given the kind of integration chat. Did you know other families who didn't? You know, what does the alternative look like if you don't try and assimilate, as it were? Well, I knew that there were people like um, this kid who just arrived from Jamaica who lived around the corner from us, my sister's best friend's brother. And um, he dressed like his dad, so he wore he's like 13, three-piece suit, <laughs> his, his dad's hat, big steel toe-capped shoes. And his version of getting through life was to hit people. So if you said the slightest thing to him, he'd punch you in the eye or kick you or something or pull a knife on you. So this kid... This kid's way of dealing with life in the mother country was to fight from the minute he arrived. And um, I found his behaviour frightening. And he used to say, we had fish and chips teeth. You know, you guys have fish and, fish and chips teeth. We have the chicken and rice and dumpling teeth. You know, he, he used to, we were, we were weak because we'd been brought up in Britain. That's what he thought. And he was prepared to go to the ends of the earth to defend his identity and to defend himself and to stand up for his Jamaican-ness. And um, we were just English kids. And he disdained us and thought we were weak because of that. And did you feel any difference because you were born in England? Did your siblings make you feel a bit fish and chips teethy? <laughs> my, my, old, my brothers and sisters used to kind of scoff at us because we 
if we got hit by mum, we she hit me, it was, it was horrible. And they go, you call that a beating? When I was your age, she beat me with a tree. And then they go, when I was your age, she beat me with the car. When I was your age, she beat me with the house. It was like that Monty Python sketch. You were lucky. It was really weird because whatever happened to us, no matter what mom hit us with, they'd always had it worse when they were my age. So you couldn't really complain. I remember once just hiding under a table and praying for it to be over. And it, it wasn't over for a long time. And so it kind of stopped when I bought her a house, actually. That was, that was bizarre. When I bought her a house, everything changed. I got the bigger piece of meat at the meal table. Dad was really pissed off. Oh, come he gets the big piece of meat. When you buy me a house, you can have the big piece of meat. It was kind of like that. So I kind of thought, God, I should have got a job when I was six because I hated being hit. And as a result, growing up, I was very on the back foot. I was very defensive all the time and reactive. I did as I was told in any situation. I always deferred to the older, more adult voice. And that kind of undid me for a while. I had to learn how to not do that. I had to learn to stick up for myself as I grew older. And did it get to a point in writing the book or did it happen many years before where you sort of could accept and kind of feel that those beatings weren't okay? Because it's, I guess it's quite easy to minimise it. Your siblings got it worse. It's what happens. She had a hard life, so that's what she's going to do. Like, were you able to sort of see look after yourself a bit in writing the book and see that this this was a really tough thing to have had to experience and live through. What's great about writing a book about, about oneself is that you do start to do the jigsaw puzzle of your psyche, of your spirit, mm. and um, you're in it and you're rewriting it, so you're reliving it. And actually, as a 63-year-old person, you do look back and go, that wasn't okay. Mm. You know, and if I'd been... If I'd been around now, I would have rung childcare or whatever, you know. I would have gone to a teacher and said, my mum hit me with a belt and she hit me with the buckle bit. And that's not right, is it? There were many, many times when I wanted to run to somebody and go, is this okay? This feels wrong. But I didn't because I was, I was scared. And as an adult, I did look at these things and I did cry and I did think that was wrong. She shouldn't have done that. I remember once she was in hospital because the last seven years of her life, she was in and out of hospital a lot. She should have had her own parking space. And I remember saying to her, Mum, why did you... And this is a traditional thing in Jamaican upbringing, I think. Mum, why did you beat me so much when I was little? And she looked at me and she went, I never beat you that much. So somehow, she'd kind of conveniently forgotten what she was like as a mum. She'd forgotten it, she'd wiped it clean to her... Those beatings were par for the course and they didn't really matter and it wasn't that bad anyway. But to me, as an adult, they really figure in my life. They are part of my DNA. Mm. In the stickle bricks of my life, they are considerate and keep the whole thing standing up. Those beatings are things I remember and have learned from. For instance, when we adopted my daughter, I knew in my heart that the one thing I would do is the opposite of anything my parents did raising me. I think Billy was smacked or told off or ticked off three times in her entire life. She's 30 now. I don't think she was ever really hit by any of us. So that's magic. That's an amazing thing. So I just decided to do the opposite. And would your mum have 
been hit by her mum. Yeah, this is all, listen, abuse is abuse. So mm. I think that if you're brought up by somebody who has been really hit by their parents, you're going to get hit. You know, in Jamaican, in Jamaican society in those days, violence in the home was something that was, something was, that was just expected. Kids got hit. That was it. And hard. And it stems from slavery, I think. This idea that, you know, if the slaver sees your children misbehaving, he might kill your child. But if the slaver sees you beating your child really badly, mm. he might leave your child alone. Look how I'm beating my child. You don't have to do that. You don't have to worry about beating him. I'll do it. And I think that permeates through to just bringing your child up normally without having the slaver around. It's a slave mentality. Mm. There's so much about behaviour that comes from survival technique and this passage and so much of the book and even the title, Who Am I Again?, is about you being, I think you describe it as at home Len, on stage Lenny, backstage Lenny. You're obviously really kind of beautifully articulating that in the book, but if you can take yourself back to the 70s, would you have felt in that moment this sort of teenage self splitting in that way? Because you are wearing so many different hats. Yeah, well, I call it mask wearing. You you had to kind of put on a different mask for different situations. So there was the home len, which was everybody speaks Jamaican, eats enormous bowls of food that you can't quite see over, talks patois and laughs in unison at Frank Spencer. Then there was park len. So in park life, there was me, Greg, Mac and Tom, and we were like the Dudley posse, and we all spoke with Dudley accents and played football every day and ran everywhere and um, had tea at each other's houses. And then there was school then, which was just try and get through school. It's so boring and deal with the bullies and try to deal with the kind of everyday racism that happened there from pupils and teachers. And then suddenly there was showbiz Len. And who the hell is this guy? This guy does impressions on stage in front of people and gets rounds of applause and standing ovations. And what is this? This guy gets to hobnob with Charlie Williams and Mikey Arwood and gets to be on telly. And then there was kind of boyfriend Len, the kind of useless bloke who didn't really know how to have a relationship with a girl because what role models that I had to do with relationships? None. Every relationship I had ended with just sort of a fizzling out because I just didn't know how to... I liked all the kissing and the dancing and the partying and going to the pictures and snogging, but I had no idea, early doors, how to maintain a relationship. And that was really problematic. So there were lots of hats to wear, and I'm not sure I juggled them with any aplomb at all. And what kind of a toll does that take? Did you almost feel like a different person when you walked on stage to when you walked in your front room with your brothers and sisters? Yeah, I think at home, Lennon on stage, Len were the easiest ones, really. Because at home, I was Lenny and I was at home. And nobody called me Lenny at home because that's a very, that's like Liverpool. That's like, Leno, I like there, Leno. And totally, it's Lenny, you're right, Lenny. Everybody had an E on the end of their name. So I was Len at home. So that was easy. And on stage, I was this kid who loved doing impressions and telling jokes. And so those were the two easiest. Being on stage is still the easiest thing that I do. I think real life is something to be navigated. And that needs mental health, self-knowledge, friends, skill, self-care, all those things. And that's a lot of stuff. Mm. So on stage, you can click into something freer. 
Well, well, on stage, you click into something that you know. I know how to talk to audiences and be cheeky. I know how to do my set. I've been doing that since I was 16. I know how to imitate people. I can act because I've learned it. But, you know, life has no script. When we were raising Billy, we used to hide behind doors and go, okay, she's done this. What are you going to do? I'm going to say this. Okay, well, I'm gonna, I'll back you up and I'll say this. Okay, let's go. You know, there's no script for raising a child. There's no script for dealing with contracts and sitting in an agent's office and realising that this isn't quite right, but what are you going to do? There's no script for real life. There's only script for scripted things. You discussed this kind of duvet of depression when you were locked into the five years of performing in the black and white minstrel show. Such in- a drama queen. <laughs> Was that a bit of a trigger when you finally got out of that? Did that kind of ignite something in you where, because you talk about this understandable survival technique of using humour to deflect and, and cope with, you know, all the racial tensions in, in Dudley, but did coming out of that minstrel show make you want to change tact in terms of how you react to racism and did it spark your activism that came no not really all the minstrels did was make me realize that i should never have signed that contract momco signed the contract with robert luff because i was 16 remember so i was a child i had no say in it really all the minstrels did was make me go well i'm never doing that again that's taught me a lesson the kind of moving to being more thoughtful and more self-protected in terms of race came later and had already started because I was working with Norman Beaton in the Fosters and I was living with Joe Charles in Wembley and both these guys were making me read books about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and the Black Panthers and black history and stuff and so my education in terms of black self-care had already begun and um, listen don't be under no illusions I knew I was in the deep and dreadful. I just didn't know how I was going to get out of it. And once I was out of it, I vowed that I'd never get back in it. And your family, would they say outright, what are you doing? Or was it too... Nobody said anything. They understood it. Nobody said anything. My mum did come and see the minstrel show and support me, but there was no judgment. And Seymour, who I thought would kick down the doors with the, with the school, because he was in the RAF with a bunch of colleagues with machine guns. Seymour never came and said, this is bullshit, come on, you're coming with me. You know, he never took me away to a compound and learned, taught me to assemble an AK-47 or anything. And he's the most radical of people in my family. They just all sort of said, oh, well, this is what Len's doing. This is what he's got to do to earn his stripes. And I wished somebody had said, you're not doing this show, but nobody did. It was very much my decision and I, I was the one who had to get through it and realise. So it was a massive learning curve for me. It taught me a lot of lessons. Well, you discussed the burden of taking care of your family in that in that passage. What was it like being the breadwinner? I mean, did they, they obviously appreciated it, but did your siblings take the piss as well? What was really good was I did a, a television programme recently where my sister Sharon described how it had been. And you forget sometimes, you know, we grew up in poverty there's no money. Mum and dad put food on the table, but we were not living in Lord Stooge's house. You know, we lived in a house with mice and with roaches, if such a things exist in Britain. Our house was on a broken sewer outlet that used to flood every summer. You know, we were not wealthy. So when I came along and won new faces and was able to earn money, 
I was able to get things fixed, buy a new fridge, buy a colour television. I was able to eventually buy my mum a house and a car. And Sharon said, it made everybody's shoulders go down. Everybody's shoulders dropped because Lem was here. And so when I heard that, I realised that I was able to have done some good and that made me proud. Wow, yeah, yeah. So So it wasn't a burden, in fact. It was something that made me realise that if there was anything to get out of show business, it was this, helping other people. And I still think that. Having grown up in a household where money was an issue every day of our lives, to suddenly take that away was something to be thankful for, I think. And so yeah. um, people were very respectful, and that was good. I was, that kind of messed me up a bit because before New Faces, you know, right up until I was 14, I was getting hit and beaten and yelled at. And then suddenly... And I don't know what this was, but because of Greg and McIntyre, I was going out and I was experiencing life as, an, as a kind of semi-adult. I was too young for it all, but I was going to pubs and I was going to clubs and I was socialising and I was integrating. And I think mum could see that I was growing up. And so she was treating me differently. I didn't even really realise it. But the hitting stopped and there were expectations of me you know, she expected me to, if I had a job, I had a Saturday job, for instance, at Dudley Zoo. And in the holidays, it was five, six days a week. I was expected to give her my wage packet at the end of the week, and she would give me my pocket money from that wage packet. But somebody who worked in our household was respected. And then when I went into show business and she saw me on TV, it was almost like somebody had peeled a layer off me. And I was this other Len. And she could see that. She could see that I was this other Len that might be the answer to all her prayers. She said, I was blessed. She kept saying it, you are blessed. And suddenly I was able to get things and do things and solve problems and pay the rent and sort out the mortgage. And suddenly I wasn't just Len who sometimes broke things or took money out of her purse. Suddenly I was Len who could help her to get a new place to live or send her to Jamaica for six weeks. I wasn't the old Len, I was this new Len. And she was very, very grateful for that. But that made me worry about the other Len. Why didn't the other Len deserve respect? Why did she hit the other Len? I had all these other questions and I had no answers. Obviously, as you've said, it was the shoulders could drop with more money coming in. But how did she, how do you think your mum felt about the fame? Was that quite exciting? It must be so exciting to, sit, uh, to see you on the TV. Well, she liked it as well because she was respected as Lenny's mum. You know, when the press came round, it was Lenny's mum, can we have you in the photo, please? You know, she'd dress up when the press came round. She came on Tiswas in a ball gown. You know, my mum loved being on telly. My mum loved being in the kind of midst of things. And... When later on she became born again, that kind of dropped off in chunks. But she still wanted to come to new, um, Three of a Kind and sort of hang out in the dressing room. She still came to the Lenny Henry show and hung out in the dressing room or in the makeup room and watched the telly on the monitors. So she, she liked being made a fuss of, and I was glad of that. She deserved it. Did you ever get, I mean, if this is too personal, don't worry, I don't answer, but did you ever get to sort of say, but what about the... Other Len, like you you just asked that? Did you get to say that as an adult? Only, only near the end. 
I asked her when she was in hospital, lots of things, and she was able to articulate very, very well about the circumstances of coming to Britain and what it was like and being on her own and how cold it was and dealing with racism every single day and getting different jobs for different reasons and, and going off piece and meeting Bertie and realising that there was a different kind of relationship than just the dutiful one, you know, because being married to Winston was a dutiful relationship. She'd married him young. She'd had four children with him and she was being a dutiful wife. It was very patriarchal in Jamaica in those days and in many, many cases still is. And she was a young woman when she was married to him. But coming to Britain all those years later, she was suddenly free. She was without him because he didn't come over for 18 months. And in that time, she'd fallen in love. She was having a relationship that was very much more equal than it was. She was pregnant with me and she was being cherished and she hadn't had that. And she told me all these things. And I, literally, we were all kind of like, huh? why, why are you telling all this stuff now? And then after she died, me and the Sibs would get together and sit. And the older ones would tell, tell me about what mom was like when she was younger. My jaw was on the floor because suddenly these stories were coming out. And I hadn't been told these things before. Because when you're a little kid in Jamaican society, Jamaican culture, little kids do not participate in big people's business. So big people's business is big people's business. And children are meant to stay outside and mind their own business. So right up until I was 30, there were things I just had no idea. And it wasn't until mom had passed away and dad had passed away that I was privy to stuff that had gone on when we were kids. And I was shocked. Wow. And what about the effect, um, your kind of the fame and, and earning? What impact did that have on your relationship with your dad? Winston was very smart, tough, very, very hardworking. And I think he thought it was easily won. There was one day after he'd watched the second New, New Faces performance where I came second by one point to Aldine, the Liverpool matchstick comedian. Uh, I'm so skinny, I have to run around in the shower to get wet. Uh, that was an example of his top humour. Um, but I came second by one point and Dad put his hand on my shoulder and he said, just make sure you keep your feet underground. That was it. That was his sole piece of advice. And he was right. You know, I mean, this was the guy who raised me. I mean, Bertie did not raise me. Papa raised me. So I had a different relationship with him. I was craving his attention and his love and any kind of tactile relationship. There were never any hugs. He never said, I love you. Nothing. Never told me a story. Never read me a story. But I was craving his attention. So for him to say, just make sure you keep your feet underground, to me it was like finding a gold nugget in horse droppings. So, um... He reminds, was me weird. Of my, reminds me of my um, Trinidadian grandpa because just everything's a cricket reference. Yeah, <laughs> did yeah. He speak he, through he, the prism of cricket. Sometimes he did, but he mainly bullied us with cricket. We weren't allowed to watch Scooby-Doo or the Double Deckers if cricket was on. He would just come in and turn the telly off and we'd be like, what? I want to watch a cricket. Shut him out. So he, he navigated his way through the house through cricket and reading the paper. And because... He knew about mom and Bertie. We lived for most of our childhoods in, in quite a frosty atmosphere and didn't realise why until much, much later. But he was kind to us generally and um, didn't bully us. So we were grateful for that. 
Sounds like you've done a lot of exploring of big people things now that you're a big, big person and you get to write, write a book and can sit down with your siblings and kind of make sense of it all, I guess. Well, there's been work, you know, I had a lot of Greek therapy when mum died, which turned into normal therapy. And what's great with self-exploration is, you know, the subject matter. And you also know when you're hiding things or, or trying to cover something up. And what's great about good therapists is they call you on it. So I've done a lot of work on that stuff. And the book was the culmination. There will be a sequel to the book. It's called Rising to the Surface. Oh, it comes good. Out next, comes out next year. But the exploration of one's belly button is key here. So um, I'll be doing more of that in the future. And what do you make of how different the world is now around talking about mental health and self-care and the honest conversations we'd hope to have with our parents? I think what I've learned is that when you're an adult, you can ask anything you want of your parents. And then you've got to sit back and wait because they might not come out with it straight away but you're allowed to ask questions because you're a grown-up now. And um, it took me ages to kind of grapple with this thing of, when is it okay to say, how did you feel? When you hit me, why did you go much further than any parent I've spoken to since I've become an adult? Why did you do those things? And then you have to wait. And they'll either deny or they'll stop and think and tell you the truth. And my experience of counselling is that sometimes the truth is like digging. You don't know what's there until you've had a really good old root around and dug deep enough. And so you have to be patient. And they might kick and scream and yell and say, mind your own business. But at some point, they'll, they'll break and they'll tell you what you need to know. But you have to be prepared to hear it because some of these things are deep, deeper than deep. If you're not prepared to hear it, you might be unsettled and undone by it. Um, so mm. it was ages before my mom said, I love you, by the way. It was ages. And what was great was, because I was in showbiz where everybody, everybody said, love you, bye, darling, love you, mwah, mwah, love you. <laughs> I just started to say, love you, mom, mwah. And then eventually she went, love you too. <laughs> it just came out like that. Like oh. a sort of, like a weird sort of well-buried thing that she just hadn't said. I love you too. And then it got stronger as she realised that I was never going to stop saying it. So it was great. Aww. Love you, mom. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Showbiz gave me superpowers. Did you get some of the, any love yous then from older siblings? Did they take on a kind of parental? We were cool. We, we Since the sibs actually, which only begun after mom died, my mom said, when I'm dead, you guys are going to scatter to the four winds. And that hasn't been true because we all vowed that we would make a point of having each other's backs and meeting up two or three times a year, which has been difficult during the pandemic. So we've done some Zooms where I've looked up people's nostrils because older people just do not know how to do the Zoom properly. The camera is always pointing up their nose um, or they're always in the dark or the mute is always on. It's ridiculous. Anyway, we've stuck together and we care about each other. And we do say, I love you and I love you and I love you and I love you. Bye. We do say that. Mm. So that's good. I really cried on that page. The other page I also wanted to pick, but is it your older brother Seymour at your dad's funeral when everyone... No, at Hilton's funeral. Hilton's funeral. Yeah, Sorry. Hilton's my oldest brother. He died recently. And there was a moment where Seymour, 
who's the second oldest brother, got up to read a eulogy and he couldn't, he read three lines and just broke. And it, we, we all waited with bated breath to see if he'd read on and he couldn't read on. He was in, something in him just couldn't get through it. He was just so upset, expectedly, you know, this is, this is what happens when someone you love passes away. And I thought it was my idea but almost telepathically, like Professor X had said, to be my X-Men, we all ran towards Seymour and held him. Oh. And I started to read what he had to read, but then he took over and got to the end. But we were all in bits, but we were all there for him. And I think that's, that's a good metaphor for us for the future. We have each other's backs. And no matter how much we get on each other's nerves sometimes, we are going to look after each other, whatever happens. Yes, we've got our friends and our own families, but for old school stuff, for drilling deep stuff about back in the day, we've only got each other. So we need to maintain our relationship ties. So you talk about wearing masks. I wanted to look a little bit at, was it on the Fosters that you said that in that whole time you only met one mixed race head of makeup? There was no black editor, producer, director. No, no, there were no, there were no, there's nobody in that show. Well, new faces. There were people in the canteen and guys who moved scenery. When I did the Fosters, apart from the cast, there was only the head of makeup who was mixed race, who was lovely actually. Um, and actually, strangely, I thought that was going to be a, a thing throughout my career that I would see a mixed race makeup person or costume designer. But from the time I did the Fosters, till just recently, I never met any black or brown heads of department ever. I worked at the BBC for 35 years and the only people that were of colour were the people on the canteen and the people on security when you went in. That was it. I mean, I was re-watching your BAFTA speeches and it's kind of like, and you're, I think one of them you're saying, oh, how can this be happening in 2014? <laughs> and the next one, how can this be happening in 2016? So now it's 2021 what are the adjustments you feel that you make or what's the kind of emotional toll that perhaps white people don't get that when you are the only person who looks like you time and time again on a on a set? The thing to do is to push on because it's not anybody's fault that they're the only anything on any set. But what you can do if you're in the business is to work behind the scenes to try and affect change. And I think all the diversity and inclusion stuff, which I'm still doing, is a testament to that things are changing, but slowly. Meetings are being had a little more frequently than they were. And government has been engaged in this. Everybody's trying to figure out how to solve the diversity and inclusion problem. And the answers are very, very simple. But they're doing that thing that people always do first, which is make it much more complicated than it needs to be. It's about work. It's about giving people jobs. It's about seeing people, allowing people to be seen and allowing people to do their best work and allowing the cream to rise to the top. You know, don't impede someone's progress because of their sex or their race or their, their kind of gender difference. Allow them to rise to the top or rise to the middle, you know, but allow them. Mm. Because if you stand in their way, they're not going to be able to get past you unless they punch you in the face and jump over you and nobody wants to do that so I'm still talking to people I'm still trying to get people to talk to each other about why there are these strangely 
racist and sexist things going on in our media. You know, I go to work and there are these epic media fails. There might be three or four black people in the entire set. One of them will be a stand-in. One of them will be, might be a focus puller. One of them might be a driver. But there's no consistency to it. There's no black editor, director. There's no execs. And um, that really needs to change. And have you seen any, I don't know, door open for people who, if they have experienced racism in the media, where they, just because I interviewed Nova Reed and she was talking about the re-traumatising effect of microaggressions and that a white person might be able to brush it off as like, oh, it was just a casual comment, I didn't mean anything by it, but what that actually can do to someone physically and mentally and the emotional toll that takes. Like people who are experiencing those microaggressions and not not necessarily avert racism, but but racism nonetheless, where are they? I just feel like there's been this huge reckoning with the Me Too movement and people able to speak about these experiences. Do you feel like that's happening with people of, of colour in Britain in, in the media? Well, I'm, I'm just watching this Indian cricketer oh, yeah. in tears on television the other day on the news and thinking, wow, what's changed? This guy was racially abused and picked on and and all of that stuff from the time he joined a cricket club to just now. Nothing's changed. Mm. When is this going to, you know, you sit there watching telly going, when is this going to stop happening? Michael Holding breaks down post-George Floyd's murder live on television and speaks incredibly eloquently about things must change. And yet, when are we going to stop watching people of colour crying on television? When are we just going to change things without something making us do it? It's, I'm tired of reacting. Mm. I think we've got to act. I mean, I've written a book called Access All Areas, which I'd like to mention with Marcus Ryder. And in that, there's a manifesto at the back. And it says, we're looking for a power share, not a power grab. And that's true. We want to be part of the situation that makes our media great. We don't want to be a problem that you're always having to worry about. Mm. We want to be part of the solution. And if you don't let us be part of that, then you're always going to have us banging on the door going, let us in, why can't we do this? We want more, we want more. It's like a big people conversation that isn't happening, that needs to happen. How do you not just self-combust with all this? <laughs> you have been saying this for years. Well, with the data to back everything was, up. The BAFTA speech was 2013, and we're in 2021 now. And um, things aren't changing, but it's infinitesimally, is that the right word? It's glacially slow. So um, there's a sense of passing the baton. You know, Idris Elba, Tandy Wayne Newton, Riz Ahmed, of all, David Oyelowo, have all picked up the baton with regard to diversity and inclusion. And they're all saying things that are important to say in the public eye. But I'm still wanting to make change through government in those rooms where things get changed, where policy gets made. Because, you know, if you think about the Bristol bus strike, that triggered a change in the Equalities Act. And I think there's deep policy change that needs to happen with regard to racism, diversity and inclusion in British society. And I think that's what we need to be shooting for. No cosmetic change, only deep and lasting forensic change. That's a thing worth fighting for. Mm. And maybe that's something that'll be with me till I die. Mm. 
I'm going to get that book. So that's Access All Areas with yeah. Marcus Rylands. Oh, and Black, Black British Lives Matter, which is out today. That's uh, Marcus Ryder and myself curating a bunch of issue I- interviews which are issue-led with people like Doreen Lawrence and David Olasoga about why being black and British matters. Thank you for listening to Paige. If you've got a moment, I'd love it if you could rate and review this episode to help me get the word out and keep the show going. You can also find great photos and information about next episodes over on Twitter and Instagram at Abbyholic. Oh, and please subscribe. Did I say that? Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Page is a Good Tape production, produced by me, Abby Hollick. Original music by Paddy Jervis and Rob Sell for Torch and Compass. Sound engineer support from Hunter Charlton and Chris Sharp. Graphic design from Tim Hughes. Thanks, team. 